electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Exchange on this Friday. Markets are rallying in the face of bad news on the COVID front. Places everywhere from Chicago to Detroit to Connecticut and New York are rolling back reopenings. We look at the economic ripple effect. Plus, home prices are still rising in every corner of the country for the first time in four decades. Is the market getting too hot? We'll explore that. And behind the DoorDash, the discount store decade and employees getting recharge days. That's all coming up this hour. But let's begin with the markets. As always, Dom Chu has more for us. Dom? All right. So, Kelly, this week has been that big tug of war about companies, sectors, industries on the reopening side of things versus the lockdown side of things. Overall, we've seen markets doing much better for those industries that have a tilt towards the reopening of the economy this week. But for right now, the Dow Industrial is showing that positivity up about 1%, 300 point gains there. The S&P 3571, the level, 1% gains there as well. And the laggard, three quarter of a percent gain for the NASDAQ composite. Now, let's explore that NASDAQ underperformance a little bit. It's not just today. So far this week, the two best performing sectors in the S&P 500 have been Energy, you can see they're up 16%, and financials, two value-oriented sectors leading the way higher. Meanwhile, technology and retail consumer discretionary are the real laggards. You can see there's some big underperformance from both technology and retail. The reasons why, mega-cap technology like Apple, Microsoft, also retail like Amazon, underperforming. And then if you're looking for a stock of the day, there is just one S&P 500 company that is making a new record high today. We'll put a little gold star there. That is Comcast, the parent company of this network and others in the NBC family. Since the pandemic lows, this stock is now up about 54% over the course of that time span since March. Now, year to date, it's only up 9% still, though. Some news today, Kelly, about Comcast Ventures, their venture capital arm getting folded back into the business. It will focus on strategic initiatives that benefit Comcast. We'll see if that news carries Comcast even further. But for right now, our parent company doing pretty well, Kelly. Back over to you. We'll take it. Dom, thank you very much, sir. Dom Chu. And we've now seen nine straight days of 100,000 plus COVID infections. As cases continue to rise, there is renewed focus on testing and accuracy. Elon Musk tweeting last night, quote, something extremely bogus is going on, was tested for COVID four times today. Two tests came back negative, two came back positive, same machine, same test, same nurse, rapid antigen test from BD. That's reference to Becton Dickinson. Musk is a longtime COVID skeptic, of course, perhaps not the best example to use here, but his tweet does point to a problem many have experienced, inaccurate test results, which could jeopardize our ability to control this pandemic. And for that, we bring in Meg Terrell with more on this for us. Meg? Hey, Kelly. Well, this is causing quite a stir in the uh, COVID testing community today, I can tell you. Um, What I am hearing is that Musk's experience is not typical and is not how you are supposed to use these tests. First of all, there are a lot of unknowns. These antigen tests, and specifically the Becton Dickinson one that he is probably talking about, you know, is designed to be used within five days of symptom onset. Now, he noted that he has had a 
uh, cold symptoms for a few days. But there are a lot of things we don't know about the circumstances under which he was tested. But let's take a look at the kinds of tests that are available out there on the market, because I know a lot of people have questions about what they could be getting. And really, when you're thinking about testing for current infection, those are the molecular or PCR tests. Those are really considered the gold standard because they're very accurate. Uh, and then there are antigen tests, which um, are often things like uh, you heard Elon Musk talking about there. Antibody tests are a different animal. They test for past infection, so not current infection. Um, and now the molecular or PCR tests, those you can get by nasal swab or saliva. So if you're doing a spit test, that's the same thing, uh, really. It's just the way you're collecting the sample. Um, you can do home collection of those molecular or PCR tests uh, and then send them off to a lab to be done. We don't yet have any tests that can be completed in the home. Um, the results typically take longer for PCR tests. There are a few that can give you really quick results, uh, less than 30 minutes. Antigen tests are often very fast, less than 30 minutes. Um, and here's the big question everybody has, accuracy. Now the FDA notes that PCR tests are highly accurate, typically don't require another test. Antigen tests sometimes can require another test, particularly if you get a negative result, but you have symptoms. Uh, then they say you should follow up with a PCR test. Now I talked with Michael Minna at Harvard. He's really an expert on rapid testing. And he says, you know, Musk was doing this in a way that he wasn't supposed to. You don't retest with the same test over and over again. If you get a negative, but you think you might have COVID, you should be retesting with another test. Even another rapid test would give you better results than redoing it like this. So um, definitely sowing some confusion there, Kelly, about testing. Back over to you. Yeah, but it's almost like he has the luxury of proving just how wrong these tests can be. Now, to Becton Dickinson's, uh, in fairness, they did just come out <laughs> and respond uh, to this. They said they're aware of the tweet by Elon Musk and they're reaching out to learn more. Uh, they said, while the scientific community agrees no diagnostic test is perfect, we, they stand behind the quality and utility of their system and assay. But Meg, here's my point. This is happening in the real world all the time, and it's driving people crazy. I have a neighbor, this was after Halloween, whose kid's friend got COVID. So they got, uh, they said to the, you know, okay, we're going to get our kid test. We're going to make sure that she gets tested with a PCR test. No one else even knew what she was talking about. They just took their kid up for whatever antigen antibody test was available. Uh, the test providers were telling all the parents, yeah, it's 99% accurate. And my friend's sitting there telling people, no, it's not. Like these, you're either getting wrong information or there needs, you know, she's saying, please, could somebody, you know, come out and explain more clearly, some public official, right, Anthony Fauci, somebody, and just say, Listen, you really need to get this confirmed with the best test out there. Even the points guy this morning on Squawk Alley, Meg, said when he travels, he feels more comfortable internationally because they tend to use the PCR test more reliably than the U.S. This feels like a huge, huge public education problem. It certainly is. We need to talk about this more. And what experts will tell you is that these tests need to be used in the right way. They have a role in helping us with this pandemic, and we need to use every tool that we have, but we need to use them correctly. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's sort of the situation here. Retesting himself four times with the same test was not going to really help him very much. Yeah, no, understood, understood. But, um, you know, hopefully, I, I don't know if we can just roll out more of the PCR tests. I guess there's no way to make it go more quickly. I know that's a big hang up. Uh, but anyway, Meg, thanks for uh, talking to us about this today. Meg Trell with the latest on what's going on on the testing front. Meanwhile, the economic fallout from new restrictions across the country, paired with people's increased caution as cases spread, well, it's starting to add up. Steve Leisman joins us now with a tally. Steve?
Yeah, just early days, uh, Kelly, as cases surge across the nation, the U.S. economy is going to struggle to bridge to a time when a vaccine is widely available. New York Fed President John Williams telling the Financial Times this morning, quote, the very large rise in COVID cases puts a question mark on the ability of the economy to weather this period. Kelly mentioned a bunch of the things we're watching, some new government lockdowns, some advisories, some are actually uh, uh, legal or laws, actually. Consumers voluntarily staying away, businesses pushed over the edge, and millions, of course, about to lose benefits, jobless benefits, and facing evictions. Uh, and there is no, by the way, new relief on the way. Earlier today on Squawk Box, restaurateur Cameron Mitchell said it's deja vu all over again for him and his 36 restaurants. Our sales are, are beginning to drop. We got up to about 70, 73% of last year's sales in September and October as cases have, have grown and the states have started to slide and, and it's getting worse yesterday. I, I think the U.S. is reporting over 150,000 cases. So um, I feel like we're right back at the beginning almost and I, I feel like we're going to be shut down. Chase credit card spending data has declined steadily over the past several days, now down 6.6% from a year earlier. Goldman Sachs in a note saying the pace of recovery will get worse before it gets better, but added, quote, there will be growth in the spring, a quote from the uh, famous movie Being There. And they're sticking, Kelly, with their forecast for 5.3% growth next year. All right, Steve, thank you, sir. Steve Leesman. And we turn to markets, which are, after the discussions we've just had, you'd think would be reflecting some of this concern about the economy and COVID. But no, we're higher today, and the reopening trades are outperforming. Names like Carnival, Simon Property, and Phillips 66 are among the top performers in the S&P right now, with gains of about 7% each. How can this be? Let's bring in Brad McMillan. He's the chief investment officer of the Commonwealth Financial Network. And Barry Knapp is managing partner and director of research at Ironside's Macroeconomics. Uh, Barry, give me, you know, explain this to me. Is it is it just the vaccine? We're looking through this. I, I'm really surprised at the market's resiliency here. There, there are two things going on. Here, oh, sorry, Brad. Brad, let me. Uh, one second, everybody. Brad, let me turn to you and uh, please answer the same question. There are two things going on here, as I see it. Um, first is we're seeing the economy continue to improve. Yeah, we've seen spending data pull back a little bit. But when you look at job growth, that's held up even as the pandemic has gotten worse. When you look at layoffs, they've gone down even as the pandemic has gotten worse. So from a very fundamental perspective, the economy is adapting. And companies are adapting, too. When you look at earnings, they're coming in better than expected. Yeah, the pandemic is getting worse, but we're getting better at living with it. it we, don't, we can continue to grow the economy even if the pandemic gets worse. Right. So, Brad, here, I totally take your point. Listen, even the job openings data, the latest that we have, were very, very good, but it's with a lag. Everything that you're describing is describing the situation at least as of two, three, four weeks ago. You know, Steve just gave us that data from Chase, and I'm not saying this is some, has to be some cataclysmic halt in economic activity, but it's obvious that the trend is slowing, and I'm asking why the market isn't at least repricing that with a decline of something in the range of three or five or whatever the number is, 7%. Because the market's looking through the short term. I mean, we know that the virus is getting worse, we, and that's actually we're going to be living with this for the next six months. But the question is, when we talk about a slowdown, when we talk about a lockdown, people are thinking what happened at the start. 
And it's not going to be like that this time. We're not going to see a national lockdown. We're seeing local lockdowns. They're more nuanced. People are pulling back, but they're not going to the home and not coming out again, like we saw earlier on. This is going to be a headwind, but looking through that, things still look pretty bright. What happens, Brad, if New York City schools come out and say next week that they're sending the kids home? That would be bad. But we've seen that before. And does that mean that restaurants that are operating, you know, that are now doing takeout and they're doing some, does that mean they're going to go back to zero? I don't think so. It's not, is it going to be a headwind? It's go, it is going to be a headwind, but we're already seeing that the market sees how things are getting worse. And the market has decided rightly or wrongly that we're going to get through this. And by the way, you're saying, should the market be reacting? I would argue that it has reacted, and it's told us what it thinks. Yeah, no, that's fair. And we obviously have seen a rotation, at least earlier this week, into the, re, uh, I'm sorry, back into the stay-at-home trades. It's just ironic that we're seeing a reversal of that reversal today. Brad, we'll leave it there. Thank you, sir. Brad McMillan, my apologies Thank for you. nap. Uh, we'll bring him back as soon as we can as well. Take a quick break. Coming up here on The Exchange, there is one area of the market where supply is low, yields are high, and lower for longer could lead to even more demand. We'll tell you what it is next. Plus, the latest figures show housing prices up in every part of the country last quarter. Is housing overheating? One analyst says no until explained. We're back in a couple. This is... The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Investors have been piling into muni bonds even as defaults are on the rise. The iShares National Muni Bond ETF has rallied nearly all the way back to where it was pre-pandemic. And high-yield muni funds have swelled nearly 10% in size this year, according to the Wall Street Journal. Are all these investors heading for some major losses, especially as places like Chicago advise lockdowns again? Joining me now is Terry Spath. She's Chief Investment Officer at Sierra Mutual Funds. Terry, it's good to see you. And... I, listen, I know I, I, I suspect what you're going to say is it matters which kinds of muni bonds you hold. But for people who are in the high yield parts of this market or with exposure to places like Chicago and Illinois, are they headed for some big trouble here? Well, I, I do think that it's extremely important when we say get involved with muni bonds and the muni bond asset class that we're very clear that that means an actively managed mutual fund, because there are pockets that are absolutely, as you pointed out, problematic. And um, I should have said hello and uh, good, good happy Friday to you, Kelly. It's always nice to see you. <laughs> uh, when it does come to munis, though, we do think it's very important to be widely diversified, which means through a mutual fund, and also to avoid those pockets. They're very, it's not like one thing, um, one economic issue impacts the entire muni 
bond market. It's very specific as to what works and what doesn't. So it's extremely important to have a, a fund that can manage that for an investor. Sure. It's interesting to me that the results of the election were taken as such a big positive uh, for the muni market. I understand, obviously, that if there's higher taxes, it makes muni bonds attractive. But, Terry, what do you think the odds are and what is the market pricing in with regards to aid for state and local governments? Well, that I do think it was something that was pressuring the muni bond market, that if there was not aid coming to help the municipalities, it could be problematic. But bigger picture, I mean, taxes are not going down. They're not, they weren't going to go down under any administration. Um, interest rates were not going up. They weren't going to go down under any administration. So those two big issues are, are things that for us have been positives for this asset class, regardless of what, who won the election, uh, because mini bonds can survive in both of those quite well. Taxes are not going down. Interest rates are not going up makes sense to own muni bonds uh, for a portion of your portfolio. Yeah, and I know that you recommend specifically BlackRock's high-yield bond fund, uh, Nuveen's high-yield bond fund. You say stay away from muni ETFs. Um, I just wanted to ask you uh, sort of on the last point here, because looking through your notes, it's interesting. You think that a lot of states are in better fiscal shape than we would imagine. Is that sustainable? Um, We think that it is. I mean, I think those anticipated apocalyptic budget shortfalls are just not happening. They are happening in a couple few areas, as you pointed out, but even Illinois, the revenues are coming in better than expected. I think municipalities have been pretty good at reeling in their expenses a little bit and their revenues um, in anticipation of their revenues potentially going down. The other thing that you've pointed out is that the muni bond market is very technically driven. A lot of people buy their munis they stick them away. You don't see this type of volume in this asset class that you might expect. And for that reason, the supply and demand, uh, you know, the way they play off of each other is very important for this asset class. And there's really big demand for muni bonds and not enough supply coming in the pipeline. And so you've got mm-hmm. that going on with this asset class also. So one more positive for munis, <laughs> even though it can be a, a very boring asset class for a lot of people, it can be a terrific place um, to make a nice yield in your portfolio right now uh, after adjusting for taxes. Yeah, and that's music to people's ears uh, with rates where they are uh, and given some of the risks as well that we've gone through. Terry, thanks so much. Always a pleasure. Terry Spaff, Sierra Mutual Funds. Coming up, as COVID cases do rise across the country, could shortages of things like toilet paper come back again? We'll look at whether retailers and suppliers are better positioned to handle stockpiling now if it happens. Plus, opening the door, DoorDash gives investors an inside look at its financials as it files to go public. We've got the figures you need to know and the lowdown on its interesting share structure. Don't forget, you can always watch or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. We use it all the time. Back in a couple. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Canva presents unexplained appearances. 
It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Welcome back to the exchange. Markets are right now just off their highs. The Dow session high was 323 and we're up 318. Uh, that's a 1.1% gain for the Dow, a 1% gain for the S&P, up 36 to 35.73. The Nasdaq up two-thirds of a percent today. Really fascinating session for the market, I think. A lot of the reopening trades are leading the way. And in terms of the sectors, all 11 are in the green, and energy, industrials, and real estate are your leaders there. Energy springing back nearly 3.5%. In terms of some of the individual movers, shares of Cisco are higher after beating on the top and bottom line. Work-from-home trends continuing to boost demand for the company's products. Uh, the shares are up nearly 7%. Shares of data analytics firm Palantir higher on an earnings and revenue beat as well. This was their first earnings report since going public in September. They also raised their 2020 revenue forecast after signing 15 new contracts in the third quarter. The shares are up 7%. And we close with Bitcoin hitting a fresh high today. Again, the highest level since January of 2018. Bitcoin has more than doubled so far this year. It's over 16200 And now let's get to Sue Herrera for our CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Everybody, here's what's happening at this hour. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi had a concise answer today when she was asked at her weekly briefing if Democrats will have to compromise more after seeing their House majority shrink in last week's elections. No, not at all. We have a president of the United States. Remember, we're going to have uh, the opportunity to have Bill signed into law. Charles Koch, the billionaire industrialist who has spent a lot of money supporting conservative causes and Republican candidates, tells The Washington Post he congratulates Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and wants to look for common ground on as many issues as possible. He says he regrets his group's past partisanship on behalf of Republicans. And New York City's mayor says parents should be ready for schools to go to all remote learning as soon as Monday, as the positivity rate for COVID tests approaches 3%, the level that would trigger school closures. Biggest school district in the country. Kelly, you're up to date. I'll see you next hour. Back to you. Exactly. Sue, we appreciate it. Sue Herrera. Uh, with COVID cases rising, consumers are already starting to stock up on some groceries and household basics again. The question is, are stores and manufacturers better prepared this time? If we're facing a redux, Sarah, of what we saw last time, Sarah Eisen joins me with a closer look at all that. Hello. Hi, Kelly. Short answer is yes, they are better prepared. And we are seeing stock ups. Those rising cases and restrictions mean people are out stockpiling again. Just look at the numbers over the last few weeks. Toilet paper sales up 23%. From last year, paper towels up 27 percent, frozen foods up 19. But it isn't at the levels that we saw last spring. Those were extremely high levels, but it's worth watching. Suppliers are better prepared this time. Listen to General Mills. We've added 45 additional manufacturing lines to support our business. And I would say that we've added probably 25 to 30 percent incremental capacity in platforms that are really tight. In fact, that company says after the initial loading up of the pantry back in March and April, demand has stayed pretty strong since, 15 to 20 percent higher than usual across the portfolio. 
Smucker says PB&J sales are also up big and they feel confident they can deal with another surge having worked to increase inventory following those supply chain constraints the first time around. How about Tyson Foods, one of the biggest meat producers? It says it's already spent hundreds of millions of dollars on safety precautions like testing. They even created a chief medical officer position in preparation for another wave. Remember, it was at the center of those meat shortages earlier this year as they were forced to close plants as cases spread inside and even had a death. So what's the bottom line here? Suppliers have had time to prepare and they've learned some important lessons. There is a big difference though between now and the first wave though, and this is worth watching. COVID hotspots are more widespread around the country and they do threaten the nation's factories. General Mills, for instance, has its two biggest plants in Iowa and Tennessee in the heart of America's breadbasket. And these are places that are seeing very high infection rates this time around. So far, General Mills and others have been able to keep the plants open. But the question is, for how long? They're really, Kelly, trying to encourage their workers to stay home if they're feeling sick. They are seeing rising levels of absenteeism, but they have to make sure that the plants themselves do not become spread sources of of infections. And so far, so good on that front. I would also mention the grocery limits are are back. Kroger, Stop and Shop, and others. Two rolls of toilet paper, two rolls of paper towels. Kroger says it's a proactive move, though. They're not seeing any shortages. Good. No, it's fascinating. We chucked the paper towels, uh, went to cloth ones back in the spring, but it's a lot more laundry. No comment on the toilet paper. Uh, Sarah, wow. appreciate it very much. Uh, very Sarah environmentally Isaac. friendly, though. Good job. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I'm eco-warrior over here. Uh, We've got some breaking news out of Washington. Let's get right to Eamon Javers with those details. Eamon, what's going on? Yeah, Kelly, that's right. Transition officials working for President-elect Biden just gave a briefing for reporters laying out sort of what his schedule is going to be over the coming days. They talked a little bit about a stimulus proposal. I asked them uh, if the president-elect is supporting a stimulus between now and January 20th when he'll be inaugurated. They said uh, he does expect to be talking to Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill about that. But when I press them for numbers in terms of just how big of a stimulus is the president-elect going to be pushing for up on Capitol Hill, uh, they, they deflected that question said they're not prepared to read out any details on what he's saying just now. They also called uh, for the GSA to begin the formal process of ascertaining that there has been an apparent winner in this election and moving forward with a formal transition. They said that although Biden is familiar with his, uh, can make his way around the Situation Room in the White House, he does need up-to-the-minute intelligence information in order to begin uh, to make some decisions about how to handle the presidency next year. They said he's going to take the weekend off here, a couple days off. They say he's earned some downtime, uh, but that next week he'll be back at it, and they expect some personnel announcements to come at that point. But no news expected uh, from the Biden transition over the weekend. And, Kelly, I can tell you, uh, over at the White House, uh, President Trump's team has just announced that he is going to be appearing in the Rose Garden this afternoon at 4 p.m. They're billing that as an update on Operation Warp Speed on on coronavirus vaccine efforts uh, and related pharmaceutical efforts. Uh, We can expect that he'll talk about that unclear now whether he'll take any questions from the reporters who will be gathered for that or whether he will offer any kind of formal concession so we'll watch for that at 4 p.m at the white house today kelly back over to you yeah first time we'll really see him i think other than on veterans day all right amen thank you very much amen javers with all the news out of dc at this hour coming up disney's battle with california continues is the discount store decade here to stay and our recharge days coming to your office it's all ahead in rapid fire plus a look at the new normal in the sports world and its cancellations the exchange is back in a couple
Welcome back. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar today. It is time for Rapid Fire. Joining me today are Julia Borston, Dom Chu, and Deirdre Bosa. It's great to have you all here. And we begin with a flurry of big-name IPOs that appear to be coming before year-end. Today, DoorDash filed its S1, saying it'll list shares on the NICI under the ticker Dash. To say it got a pandemic boost would be an understatement. The delivery company reported nearly $2 billion in revenue for the first nine months of the year. That's more than triple what it made in the same time last year. Deirdre, I love the little factoid about where Tony got his name from, but what do you think the most salient point for investors from this filing is? Well, Kelly, I think you're right. A lot of folks are saying that it got this pandemic boost, but there are comps, right? This is different when Uber and Lyft went public, and we didn't really have anything to compare it to. You can compare DoorDash's financials to Uber Eats and to Grubhub, and I think what was so remarkable about this S1 is that this is a company that is growing extremely quickly. Um, revenue has, what, tripled this year from the same time last year. That's pandemic-induced. But it's also really been cutting its losses. It was actually profitable in the second quarter. That's not something that many people expected from a food delivery company when it is so competitive. And just the way that Tony Shu has managed to increase DoorDash's market share over the last year when you've seen it flat or decline at other competitors, it raises a lot of questions. I think about perhaps what Uber is doing with its pivot to food delivery and why it is just so unprofitable. Yeah, yeah. And in case anyone missed it earlier, he named himself after Tony Danza, uh, which I find adorable. <laughs> Dom, what would you say about investors? They're going to have uh, DoorDash to weigh. They're probably going to have Airbnb, CNBC reported yesterday, uh, coming. There, there's a few of these kind of big banner IPOs. Um, but the, if you look at the performance of the ones, remember when Uber was going to be the $100 billion IPO and for years there was all this hype and then it was just kind of a dog for a while after listing. What do you think about DoorDash? So, so with DoorDash, what you are getting is the kind of preeminent player in this food delivery space. I mean, you, you, we just showed a graphic of the market share for all of these types of companies. That graphic tells you that story. This is the dominant player with regard to what's happening in a fairly competitive market for food delivery. With DoorDash, if you take a look at the IPO sentiment right now, the interesting part is this is the iron hot phase. If you don't go public now, you may not get another chance to really do it with markets near record highs at these levels. With DoorDash compared to all the other IPOs that we've seen this year, it makes sense that these companies are trying to get to market as quickly as they can because the environment is still very robust for people and their appetites to get into these types of IPOs and the big name ones for sure. So, yeah. DoorDash, probably a good time to get out there. Ne next year, maybe not as much. That IPO performance this year, 70%. I mean, that's astonishing. Wow. All right, let's move along so we can get everything in here. Talk about Disney's battle versus California. The CEO, as you've probably heard, telling analysts on their earnings call last night that he's, quote, extremely disappointed in California's guidelines that have kept Disneyland shut during this pandemic. He cited other parks that have operated with limited capacity, including Disney World in Florida. Uh, the park's business has gotten crushed during COVID. Revenue was down 62% year-on-year in the fourth quarter. The stock also down about 5% this year, Julia, and, and kind of struggling to hold on to its gains today. Yeah, well, what I think is really interesting here is that that Parks Division actually did less bad than anticipated. And Chapek, Disney's CEO Bob Chapek, said that the demand has been strong in Disney World and also that they're seeing very strong bookings for the cruise ships for next year. So his point as he attacks the state of California is he said demand is there, consumers want to come back, and he cites the fact that they've had very good safety protocols 
in Florida and have been able to operate first at 25 percent capacity and then at 35 percent capacity. And he believes that they should be able to operate at limited capacity as well as California. Of course, uh, California regulators disagree, especially as we have a spike in cases here. But I think this is going to be a, a clash between Disney and the state of California that we continue to see for a while. Disney really believes that they should be able to open up that park. Yeah. It, Deirdre, I also thought it was interesting to hear Tom Rogers this morning. He was on Squawk Box talking about, I mean, look, the Disney Plus numbers are phenomenal, but he said he was a little underwhelmed by Hulu's performance, thinks that kind of hasn't gotten the attention it deserves, but that it should be doing better. What do you, th what do you make of that? Well, I think that there's just so many different faucets of Disney, right? It's kind of this recovery play on one hand for when the economy reopens um, and eventually recovers. You've got Parks and Entertainment, and then you've got Disney Plus, Hulu, perhaps more of a weaker spot, but Disney Plus does it more than make up for it. 73 million subscribers. And I said this earlier, Kelly, one real hit original content in The Mandalorian, and they've been able to put up those kinds of numbers, you know, what does it really need? It has that incredible library to fall back on, and that has made it such a contender in this space. And, you know, some analysts on Wall Street this morning calling the stock like a perfect hedge, right? You've got that recovery play and the digital transformation play. That's true. But, you know, it's struggling to hold on to those earlier games. I mean, it's still up one and a half percent, but I'm just saying I'm watching this one into the close. All right. Next, fair, Bank of America fair. is calling it the discount store decade. Their top picks uh, as we talk a little retail are Target, Walmart and BJ's whole, uh, wholesale. They're citing three factors kind of driving this whole decade of the discount store. Surging U.S. home sales, so more people moving and buying stuff for their house. Competitor store closures, including JCPenney and other mall-based retailers. And omni-channel momentum, so the big box players' huge store footprints, Dom, actually giving them advantage in the same-day shipping wars. It's interesting because do we even use the term discount? I mean, they are discount, but they're not. They in some ways seem like there's so much more than that. I mean, price has always been the differentiator. But are these just these are just premier retail options out there? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. No, I do. And this is an evolution because we used to call them big box stores as well. But there's only really a couple big box <laughs> ones, right? You're talking about the Costco's of the world that sell in bulk. We've now lumped companies like Target and Walmart and everybody else that doesn't sell necessarily big boxes, just things that discount into this idea of a discount retailer. It's an evolution that's been in place for a while. And yes, this is one of those trends that COVID has certainly accelerated. This notion that those three secular tailwinds that you just mentioned are going to be in place for a while, I totally agree with. Because if you look at even my neighborhood where I live and certainly others around metro areas where people have moved out, yes, they are buying more things in bulk. Yes, because they have the room to do so. And let's put it this way. If you buy in those types of formats, you are saving on consumer staples, items that you will spend on anyway, no matter what. Many of them don't have perishable type shelf lives. You can buy laundry detergent and keep it for a few weeks or a few months or a few years even sometimes. This is going to be something that we want to watch. And, and I really feel as though the sales trends in this kind of a market are here to stay. Yeah, totally. And uh, we didn't even talk some Costco, which is uh, everybody's favorite. But I want everyone's take on this next one, so we're going to move along. Some companies are making mental health days mandatory now. That's according to the Wall Street Journal. They're calling them recharge days, an excuse to close the office so employees can rest and unwind. Now, the idea hasn't gained a ton of traction yet, but it comes at an interesting time. A recent survey in the Harvard Business Review found 67% of workers reported having higher stress levels during the pandemic. Now, Dom, I think you were here for our discussion, was it yesterday, about the work from home tax? 
So explain to me how on the one hand work from home can be such a luxury it needs to be taxed. And on the other hand, it's such a burden that we now have to impose mandatory days off. So I was not part of the rapid fire yesterday that discussed the work from home tax, but I was tweeting about it incessantly yesterday because there was so much feedback I was getting, <laughs> mostly negative about a proposal from Deutsche Bank's uh, analysts there about putting a work from home tax in place. But I would say this, like many of us uh, out there, we have perhaps households that are in different stages of their work lives right now. My wife has been working from home you know, for, for this entire pandemic. I have been commuting to an office every day since March 30th here at CNBC. My wife is actually very jealous of me that I get to go to an office every day. She mm -hmm. would much rather be doing that kind of thing. So I can very much, it resonates with me, Kelly, this idea of COVID fatigue, especially for people who are working from home. What do you think, Julia? Julia and I feel you. I could see you nodding too, Julia. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Deirdre and I both are working from home with small children as well. So I think that's a separate thing. I think what's really interesting here is when you are working from home, there's no official end to your workday. I may not be on TV anymore, but there's no sense that I've left the office, had a commute to sort of demarcate the end of the workday. And I think that is a huge problem for people who are working from home. And I think there's this question of whether or not people are afraid they're going to be penalized if they take a mental health day, if they penalize, if they take a day off, I think there's this sense that it's sort of all hands on deck. And there's this study that shows that if people are, you know, are forced to take a day off, if it's a company wide holiday and they're not electing to take it off, people will be more likely to do it. But this idea that 55 percent of people said they feared they'd be punished if they took a mental health day. I mean, that doesn't seem right, Kelly. Yeah. Deirdre, my problem is if we take a day off, I don't have anything to do. I mean, at least over the summer, we could go look at waterfalls or something. Like, where do you go now, especially as bad as COVID is? You just bundle up and go for a walk in the drizzle and 40 degree temperatures outside? It's true, Kelly, that's true, but you wouldn't have to put on all of this makeup. So that would be one benefit. The only thing I would say here is that probably for most of us, you need to close the markets if we want a true day off. I don't know about you guys, but when I know that stocks are trading, when I know that the market's open, I can't really relax, which is maybe only my problem. But yep. if we could just call Amen. a market holiday Amen. a mandatory one, that'd be great. I'm going to go talk to my bosses right now we'll by taking some days off, by the way. <laughs> We have to get a new fridge. That's my next day off. And they are expensive. That's another story. Thank you guys today. Julia Borston, Dominic Chu, and Deirdre Bosa all joining me for Rapid Fire. Coming up, despite red-hot home prices, one housing analyst says there's no bubble in the real estate market. He joins us with why he thinks investors can breathe easy and the names to buy. We're, stay with us. We're back after a quick break. Welcome back to The Exchange. It's no secret home prices are on the rise as the pandemic drives massive demand. Third quarter single family home prices, in fact, were up 12% from a year earlier. And most interesting, they're up in all of the 181 markets tracked by the National Association of Realtors. First time we've seen that in decades. But my next guest says investors don't need to worry about a housing bubble for now. Let's bring in Wall Street's top ranked home building analyst, Stephen Kim. He's the senior managing director and head of housing research at Evercore ISI. Stephen, welcome. And do you see signs of froth there out there at all? Well, I certainly see signs that housing prices are rising very rapidly, and I know that that's caused a lot of concern for some of the bears out there who are thinking that this has gone too far too fast. But no, I actually don't think so. And I think, in fact, quite the contrary. We're at the early stages of a really a monumental 
rise in home prices and uh, that we think it's going to be tremendous uh, for the builders, particularly for their margins. And uh, I think we're actually pretty much on the early end of this. Wow. Wait, so let's talk about this for a second. You think we're on the early end of a monumental rise in home prices? I mean, that people are already starting to get a little bit of sticker shock. Well, sure. I think that there's a little bit of a fundamental misunderstanding about uh, what's going on. Like, for example, I've, I've fielded a lot of emails from clients this, uh, this week suggesting that the builders have pushed prices too much without recognizing the fact that I think that builders are actually price takers. The price that of homes is set in the existing market, which outnumber new homes by about five to one. And if you look in the existing home market, the reason why prices are going up is because demand's good, sure, but the real thing is that supply is incredibly constrained. Uh, you have never seen a level of tightness in the existing home market of homes for sale as you see today. And when there's a shortage, well, guess what? Nothing sells like a shortage and home prices go up. Meanwhile, on the new side, the builders also have construction constraints, labor constraints, land constraints, and things like that. So really, when you have good demand and you have just incredibly tight supply, home prices go up. All right. So let's get tactical, Stephen, and talk about your favorite picks here and how much upside they have. You know, the interesting thing is when you're at, at periods like this, major inflection points in the cycle, and uh, when you have, uh, when you're at the early stage of a big ramp in price and margins, you're going to make money in all the builders. And as a result, we've, we've adjusted our ratings to reflect that. We have a buy on every builder that we cover. Uh, our return potentials generally range from about 35% to 70%. Our top pick right now would be Pulte Homes. But frankly, I don't think you're going to be unhappy with the returns you get from any of the builders, the public builders that we cover right now. And it's just amazing after the run-up that we've seen this year, you think there's still that, that much room to grow. Uh, but I think those comments give some context around why. Stephen, thanks for joining sure. us. Sure, you're welcome. Thank Stephen you Kim on the builders. Still ahead, between canceled games and postponed concerts, a lot of fans have been left without their favorite live events. SeatGeek has launched new tools to try to get them safely back into the seats, and we'll talk to the CEO about that next. Welcome back. Shares of DraftKings are higher on better than expected quarterly results, a stock up about 5%. The number of unique players up more than 60% to over a million in the third quarter, thanks to a resumption of major league sports. But with cases spiking across the country, we're seeing more and more cancellation of games. Eric Chemi is here now with the latest. Eric? Kelly, that's right. As COVID cases jumping across the country, the sports industry is no exception. We're seeing a fresh wave of facilities closing and games being canceled across the nation. Today, the NFL's Cleveland Browns closing their building after a player tested positive. Earlier this week, Browns quarterback Baker Mayfield and Steelers quarterback Ben Roethlisberger were both placed on their team's COVID-19 reserve list. The league recently reported 15 new cases with players and 41 with personnel for the first week of testing in November. It's the highest number for all of the NFL all season. In college sports, the Ivy League canceling its entire winter sports schedule, which includes bas basketball. You might remember the Ivy League was ahead of the curve last March. They were the first conference to cancel their men's and women's basketball tournaments. And at least five marquee college football matchups getting postponed or canceled from tomorrow's schedule, including that big Alabama versus LSU matchup, several other SEC conference games, and Ohio State's game. Even the New York Knicks shutting down their practice facility after three positive tests there. The NBA is hoping to start a new season next month, 
but next month seems very far away at this point. College football's leaders are even discussing delaying their national championship playoff games set for January 1st. Kelly, back to you. Wow. All right, Eric, thank you very much. All those cancellations aren't stopping teams from making plans for a post-pandemic world with their fans. The ticketing platform SeatGeek is adding the Cleveland Cavaliers and their arena to its roster of partnerships. While some sports don't have live fans yet, the three NFL teams they work with already are allowing fans uh, into their stadiums. Let's bring in Jack Gretzinger. He's the co-founder and CEO of SeatGeek. Jack, welcome. And, and first, just kind of a cultural point I'd make piggybacking off of everything that Eric just said. When the NBA suspended its season in March, I mean, that was basically the most important moment for the country realizing that this pandemic was going to change life as we knew it. And we saw the market, I think the next day, fall one or 2,000 points. So it would seem to me that if we all of a sudden get, if there's no Super Bowl, of course, I think that that's a dim prospect uh, that they would ever do anything to interfere with that. But I think we have to watch sports to tell us what the next uh, phase looks like during this kind of third wave we're experiencing, don't you? Yeah, I think it's right on. It speaks to how, you know, deeply interwoven sports are in society and in American life. And also I think speaks to just the huge amount of pent up demand there is for people to get out of their homes, get back to doing what's normal. Um, so when this does end, whether that's sooner or later, I think we're going to see a huge sort of overabundance of demand. People going to events, um, almost, you know, making up for some of the, the lost revenue we've seen, uh, seen this year. Yeah. And tell me, Tell me how SeatGeek is trying to get people back in the seats now in as safe a uh, way as possible. Yeah, so we're, we're incredibly focused on allowing people to go back, but most critically doing that safely. We built a product called SeatGeek Adapt, which is all about allowing the safe return to events as features like uh, pod seating, so sort of enforcing social distancing, timed entry so that not everyone's showing up to the event at the same time, contactless purchases so that you're not handing over fiscal cash. Um, and the good news is, if you look at live events in the U.S., as events have started to return with fans, there have been no known outbreaks, no sort of meaningful spreading events due to COVID. So I think, for the most part, the industry is doing this very safely. And tell me where you're still seeing demand. You know, what, what are people still buying and, and where are they still showing up and, and trying to live uh, kind of a, a pandemic, uh, ex a safe pandemic experience? Yeah, so we're, we're, we're selling still a decent number of college football and NFL tickets, uh, particularly in some southern states, so Texas, Florida, Tennessee, Georgia. Um, and, you know, we're also seeing a ton of demand for events later in 2021. So, for example, Harry, Harry Styles is our top-selling performer many days, um, and yet his tour does not start until the middle of next year. So I think, again, that speaks to just the sort of anticipation, the looking forward to post-COVID when people get back out there. Yeah. And I think, like you said, there's a sense of, well, if I book it for later next year, you know, hopefully I'll be fine. And it gives people something to look forward to. And I can totally understand that and hope it's the case. Right. Jack, thanks for joining us today. And thanks everything that you're doing. Jack Gretzinger of SeatGeek. That does it for the exchange this hour, but stick around for Power Lunch. We're going to talk to the CEO of a members-only medical concierge service about why the wealthy may be able to get vaccines earlier than most. I'll join Dom Chu for that after this quick break. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.
People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools.